0: Hello, this is Father Michael Eads from the Toronto Oratory, and you're listening to Lexio et Oratio, a short spiritual reading podcast, followed by a reflection. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, Book 4, Chapter 1, A Devout Encouragement to Receive Holy Communion the voice of Christ. Come to me, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. What is this bread which I am to give? It is my flesh for the life of the world. Take, eat, this is my body given up for you. Do this for a commemoration of me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives continually in me and I in him. The words I have been speaking to you are spirit and life. The learner, you and I. O Christ, the everlasting truth, all these are sayings of yours. Although they were not all spoken on one occasion or written down in a single passage, since then they are yours and since they are true, It is for me to welcome them with all faith and gratitude. Your sayings, they are, it was you who spoke them. Mine too, because it was for my salvation that you uttered them. Gladly do I take them from your lips that they may be implanted all the more firmly in my heart. So kindly those words of yours are, so full of sweetness and love, They stir my soul, but my own sins fill me with fear. My troubled conscience flails me when I would receive so great a mystery. The sweetness of your words calls me on, but my clustering sins weigh me down. You bid me approach you in faith if I would share what is yours to receive the food of immortality, if I desire to win glory and life everlasting. Come to me, you say, all you that labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. O Lord, my God, how sweet and friendly do those words sound in the ear of a sinner, those words in which you invite the poor and the needy to the communion of your most holy body. But Lord, who am I to dare approach you? Why, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. And yet you say, come to me, all of you. What is the meaning of so loving a disregard of your dignity, so friendly an invitation? How shall I dare come? I know of no good in me that might give me grounds so to presume. How shall I bring you into my home? I, who so many a time have wronged your immense kindness to me. Angel and archangels bow down before you. Saints and holy people stand in dread of you. And yet you say, come to me, all of you. If it were not you, Lord, saying these words, who would believe them? If it were not your own command, who would dare draw near? That good man Noah toiled for a hundred years, building the ark that he and a few besides might be saved. How then shall I in a single hour fit myself to receive with proper respect the creator of the world. Your great servant Moses, that special friend of yours, made an ark of imperishable wood, decking it with the finest gold, in order to place the tablets of the law inside. And shall I, perishable creature that I am, dare so easily to receive you, the framer of the law, the giver of life? Solomon, wisest of the kings of Israel, gave seven years to build a magnificent temple in praise of your name. For eight days, he kept the feast of its dedication. A thousand victims, he sacrificed as peace offerings. And amid joyous applause and the braying of trumpets, he solemnly took the Ark of the Covenant to the place made ready for it. And shall I, poorest and most wretched of men, bring you into my home I who know how to spend scarce half an hour devoutly. I wish I could spend even half an hour as it ought to be spent. Ah, my God, how much did those men strive to do to win your regard? And how little is it that I do? How short a time I take in preparing to make my communion. Rarely am I completely recollected Rarely, indeed, am I entirely free from distraction. In the saving presence of your Godhead, no unseemly thought should arise. Nothing created should take hold of my mind. For he who is to enter the guest room of my heart is not an angel, but the angel's very Lord. And yet how great a difference there is between the Ark of the Covenant and its relics and your spotless body in its mighty powers, powers that beggar speech, between those sacrifices of the old law, the pattern of that which was to come, and the true victim of your body, the fulfillment of those sacrifices of old. Then why is my heart not more aflame at your wondrous presence? Why don't I take greater care in preparing to receive your holy gift? Seeing that those holy patriarchs and prophets of old, those kings and princes, together with all their people, showed such great devotion for divine worship. David, that most devout of kings, danced with all his might before the ark of God when he recalled the kindnesses bestowed of old upon his forefathers. He devised all sorts of musical instruments and wrote psalms, which he taught his people to sing with gladness. He himself, too, often sang to the harp when moved by the grace of the Holy Spirit. He taught the people of Israel to praise God with all their heart, to join each day in blessing him and telling of his goodness. If people in those days performed such acts of devotion, recalling the praise of God before the Ark of the Covenant, how great today should be the homage and devotion paid by me and by all Christian people in the presence of the blessed sacrament and in receiving the most worshipful body of Christ. There are many people who run off to various places to see relics of saints, filled with wonder on hearing of their deeds. They look over the vast churches, enshrining them and kiss the holy bones in their setting of silk and gold. And here you are, before me on the altar you my god the saint of saints the maker of men the lord of the angels when men go to see such things it is often out of curiosity and a wish for change of scenery they come back little inclined to amend their lives especially when their pilgrimage has been a mere light-hearted dashing hither and thither without any real touching of the heart but here In the sacrament of the altar, you, my God, are wholly present, you, the man, Christ Jesus. There we are, dowered in abundance with the fruit of eternal salvation, every time that we receive you worthily and devoutly. It is not frivolity that draws us there, not curiosity, not a desire for sensual pleasure, but firm faith, devout hope, and love unfeigned. How wonderful are your ways with us, O God, unseen maker of the world. How sweet and gracious your dealings with your chosen when you offer yourself to them to be received in this sacrament. It goes beyond all that the understanding can grasp. For devout souls, it has a unique attraction, kindling in them the flames of love. Those who are truly faithful to you who spend the whole of their lives trying to mend their faults, receive from this most adorable sacrament the grace of devotion and the love of virtue. Wonderful indeed is the grace that comes from this sacrament, wonderful and hidden. It is only the faithful followers of Christ that know it. Those who have no faith, those who are the slaves of sin, can have no conception of it. In this sacrament, we receive the gift of spiritual grace. The soul's lost strength is renewed, and the beauty that sin has marred returns to it once more. Indeed, so powerful is the grace of this sacrament, so full the outpouring of devotion, that sometimes, not only the mind, but even the feeble body is aware that greater strength has been given it. How great a pity it is, how much a matter for regret, that we are so lukewarm, so careless, that we are not drawn to receive Christ with greater love. For in him lies all the hope, all the merit of those who are to be saved. It is he who makes us holy, he who redeems us, he who comforts us on our earthly journey, he who is the everlasting bliss of the saints. Yes, a great pity it is that many have such scant regard for this saving mystery which fills heaven with joy and keeps the whole creation in being. How blind men are, how hard their hearts not to pay greater attention to so wondrous a gift as this. It even happens that their daily communions become a mere formal routine. Suppose that this most holy sacrament were celebrated in only one place. Suppose there were only one priest in the whole world to say the words of consecration. How men would long to go to that place, to visit that one priest of God and see the divine mystery celebrated. But now there are many priests, and in many places Christ is offered. So that the further afield holy communion is spread throughout the world, the greater proof it may yield of God's grace and love for men. Thank you, O good Jesus, eternal shepherd, for deigning to refresh us poor outcasts with your precious body and blood. For inviting us with your own lips to partake of this mystery. When you say, come to me. All you that labor and are burdened, I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Angels of God, our guardians, dear, to whom God's love commits us here, ever this day be at our side, to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, teacher of teachers, have mercy on us. Saint Philip Neri, gentle God of youth, patron of thy own, vessel of the Holy Ghost, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this long opening chapter of Book 4, the final book of The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis draws on all kinds of Old Testament examples. He speaks of Moses, who built the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box made of pure gold that had the Ten Commandments on it. He spoke about David dancing before it. He spoke of Solomon building the great temple to hold this Ark of the Covenant. Now what's implied in what Thomas Aquinas Kempis is saying is that on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, which the two angels looked down upon. And there the Jews believed that God dwelt among his people. And there, the priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the lamb, which was meant to try to take away the sins of that year, the day of atonement. The Jews believe that in their holy of holies where the ark was for as long as it was there, for it went missing in the time of Jeremiah. There, God was among his people. And so at the end of this chapter, when Thomas Kempis talks about there being one priest, one place in the world where the divine mysteries are celebrated, he's hinting that that's kind of like what the Jews had. Kind of. They were the one people who had a place on earth where they could encounter God in a place. They knew where God was, not just everywhere, but that he had made this one place a special encounter with himself. And what Thomas Aquinas is saying is that if God would have multiplied that presence, it would be a sign of greater love and grace for men. God runs the risk of it becoming routine because he wants to show us how much love he has for us. And in the Holy Eucharist, that is what God has done. Every people has become God's people. It wasn't just one chosen people who had the divine presence. Now, every nation on earth, every tongue, every land can have a tabernacle, a monstrance. Every people can have the Mass offered continually for them. And here in our tabernacles, we have not only the divine presence, we have the very humanity of Christ our Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity substantially present. There we find all his human love, all his divine love. And not only do we find his presence, we can receive him because he came to us, not invisibly, As on the Ark of the Covenant, he came in our flesh and blood, and he left himself for us under the form of food and drink, under the form of bread and wine, so that we could consume him, so that we could know that God wants to be intimately involved in our lives, and so that by eating him and drinking him, we do something very unique. We don't turn him into us like we do with regular food and drink. This precious body and blood transforms those who receive it into Christ. So that we can receive him and then ite misa es, go forth the Mass has ended. We might bring his love and mercy to other people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.